Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Micah. There's a few books in there. Actually, it's after Jonah and before Nahum. So I'll let you search for that for a moment uh, while the children are dismissed. Uh, great book, book of Micah. I love America. Make no apology for loving America. I enjoy her freedoms, especially the freedom to come to church and worship. I'm so thankful that I was born here and that I live in this country. I still believe that the United States is the greatest nation on the face of the earth in terms of God's blessings. I love America, but there are some things about the direction in which she is heading in that concern, I think, any Christian. 30% of all internet traffic, 30% goes to adult websites. In Chicago, public school teachers Kindergarten teachers are now required to spend a minimum of 30 minutes a month on sex education in kindergarten. In the United States today, more than half of couples move in together before they get married. America has the highest divorce rate in the world by a pretty good margin. Over 61 million babies have been slaughtered since Roe v. Wade in 1973. The number of babies killed each year equal the number of U.S. military deaths in all United States wars combined. 29% of United States adults have never attended church. Would you agree with me that we're not headed the right direction in every way? In fact, we are in trouble. It Could it be today that our country is actually facing God's judgment for its offenses against Him? Very possible. The Bible says in Psalm 33, 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. This year we are experiencing unrest as we've never seen before at any time in our nation. I think it's a good time for us to turn to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say. Look with me, if you would, at Micah chapter 3, and verses one, uh, starting verse 1. And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and you princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot, as flesh within the cauldron? Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Verse 5, thus saith, the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace, and he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Now look with me down at verse 11. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few moments as we look to your word. <coughs> I pray that you'd be with our nation. Help us today to recognize our role in its healing. We pray that you'd be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples walked past a blind man. The Bible says he had been blind since his birth. And the disciples asked a question. Whose fault is it that he's blind? I think this is an interesting question. They said, it was it because of his sin that he was born blind? Think about that question for a second. 
Was it because he's, I guess, in the womb? I don't know how else to explain it, but was it because of his sin he was born blind or his parents' sin? Uh, It's interesting because there's a tendency within our nature that we look to blame someone for the mess that we're in. We love to play the blame game. It all started way back in the garden when a woman ate of the fruit, gave to her husband, he ate, uh, he blamed her, she blamed the serpent, and uh, we just love to blame. That's what we do. If we look at the state of our country today, it begs the question, who's at fault? I just want to preach to you for, for a few minutes this morning. Who's at fault? There are threats to the United States of America. The looters and the criminals that we see today are a threat to our peace and safety. Much of the country today lives in fear of a pandemic and the uh, political unrest that grows with it. The desire to erase the identity of our nation, uh, tearing down statues and rewriting its history, is very evident wherever you look as you turn on the news today. I know we have powerful enemies around the world, evil, Uh, is constantly growing, it definitely exists, but it has become crystal clear of late that the enemies within America are much more destructive to our nation than the enemies from without. Who is responsible for the decline in America? Now, in Micah, the names of the kings in Micah chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that he was a contemporary of Isaiah. More, More than likely, these two knew each other and encouraged one another as they ministered in Judah This little book uh, of Micah is split into three sermons, or it contains three sermons that Micah preached to the people. Each message, uh, you know the beginning of the message because he starts it out with here. Uh, Micah is concerned about his nation. He wants his nation to know that God is not only a God of love and a God of mercy, he is also a God of judgment. And he makes that clear throughout the book. True. It it is true that God would rather bless His people. That's all throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. However, there does come a time when because of our sin and our rebellion that God's judgment will come. Eventually, God will give a nation what they are demanding with the actions that they're living. It happened in pre-flood world of Noah's time. It happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened to God's people, Israel, several times. Uh, Will God make an exception for our nation? I think not. Micah deals with three very practical and important themes here uh, throughout this book. He talks about judgment and how judgment is coming. In chapter 1, as I mentioned, he names 12 cities and points out their sins. Uh, The sins of these cities were polluting a whole nation. And if you read chapter 1, it's almost... In many cases, like you're reading uh, uh, about America, like it describes our nation as well. talks about idolatry in verse 5. Uh, when it mentions high places, that was their main sin. Uh, the people insisted, the Bible says in verse 13 of chapter 5, that they insisted on worshiping the works of their own hands. Can you imagine that? Building something and then worshiping it. Now, people do that today. We may not carve statues and bow down before them, but we certainly live for the things we manufacture. Cars, houses, things, toys, iPhones, and all those types of things. What we serve and what we sacrifice for is what we worship. In chapter 2, verse 1, we see the sin of covetousness. 
people, uh, the Bible talks about in, in that chapter that they lie awake at night thinking of new ways to get things and then they wake up in the morning early to implement them. According to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Bible says that covetousness is idolatry. How many people today have, are filled with covetousness? An ins, insatiable desire, appetite to get more things. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Not only were they covetous, not only did they use illegal means to get what they wanted, talks about in chapter 2, verse 2, frauds and threats and violence. The rich took advantage of the poor, and the rulers did not obey the law of God. Our focus today, I want to look at the second message of Micah, found in chapter 3. He points a finger at three distinct groups of people to answer the question, who's at fault? He points at corrupt politicians, compromising preachers, and complacent people. In seeing his message, we see very clearly that history repeats itself and repeats itself and repeats itself. And it is repeating itself even today. Our nation should hear this message and heed to it. And so let's delve in it this morning. Who's at fault? Number one, he said corrupt politicians. He re refers in verse one here to government leaders, heads of Jacob. That would be like senators and representatives, princes of the house of Israel. Uh, the president and the cabinet would be a, 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 a parallel there. In verse 2, it talks about how they pluck off their skin. Uh, this would mean to tear away, to seize, to rob, to take away, take advantage of them for their own selfish purposes. That sounds like our government today, doesn't it? Reading these verses is like watching the Fox Business Channel. We no longer today can look at our political leaders and see biblical leadership displayed. You know, the Bible has much to say about what God expects from uh, even government leaders or political leaders. Uh, he expects righteousness. Psalm 29, 2, the Bible says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Uh, Proverbs 16.12, it is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. Today, instead of character, when we choose our, our political leaders, sadly, more often we're looking at popularity and speech-making ability and how they look, for goodness sakes, rather than looking at their character. That's why political ads are only 30 seconds because you can't find anything more good to say about them than it takes 30 seconds to do. Amen? That's all they can find. In our government leaders, God requires righteousness. God also requires wisdom. By Proverbs 8.15, By me, talking about wisdom, kings reign and princes decree justice. Wisdom is desperately missing from the halls of our political leadership. Read about a fellow who heard about an operation that would enable him to get a brain transplant. The doctors told him about the options he had. Said, you can get an engineer's brain, it'll cost you $500 an ounce. Said, we also have a lawyer's brain, that'll cost you $1,000 an ounce. There's an option to get a doctor's brain, that is full of all kinds of anatomical knowledge, it'll cost you $5,000 dollars an ounce. 
Lastly, he said, we can give you a, the brain of a political leader, a politician, but it'll cost you $250,000 an ounce. Wow, he says, what a difference in price. What in the world is it so much more expensive to buy a politician's brain? He said, you know how many politicians we have to get together to get one ounce of brains? Amen. We understand that. It would be good if wisdom were elevated today in our political leadership. God requires wisdom. He requires honesty. Proverbs 17, 7, Excellent speech becometh not a fool, much less do lying lips a prince. Lying leaders undermine a nation. And yet today it's just taken for granted. Uh, politicians, you know how they're lying if you see their lips moving. And we just kind of accept it. And yet God doesn't desire that political leaders would be filled uh, with lying lips. Many leaders today, uh, they, they'll have you think that the problems in America are actually our Christian values. And that, that creates the problems in America. They call what we consider God's plan in marriage and family. They call it misogyny. What we call, uh, when we call out evil people who want to kill us, they call it Islamophobia. Uh, when we hold to our traditional values, they call it bigotry. When we speak out against the LGBTQEIEIO, they call it uh, homophobia. You see, they, they create the values that we have, and they, it, it, it's, they're not being honest about our problems. Leaders need to be honest in their assessment of where the problems lie. Also is required personal purity in our leadership. Proverbs 31.3, Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways unto that which destroyeth kings. If a man will not honor his marriage vows, what will he do with the vows of the public trust? Uh, and, and yet we see degraded morale in our leaders. There is an arrogance attached to power today that the normal rules of behavior just don't apply to them. But God demands personal purity. He demands protection for the weak. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 9, Open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. A leader is to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, and he is to defend the defenseless. You know, a society can well be judged by its treatment of its weakest members. I believe that with all my heart. And that is why it is all the more reason that a leader should stand strong on behalf of the unborn and those who cannot defend themselves. As Micah warns the people, hey, God is about to judge. And he points first his finger of blame to the corrupt politicians. He's a, who's at fault, he says. Number one was corrupt politicians. Secondly, who's at fault? Compromising preachers. Look at verse number five. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace! And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Should they be preaching peace when judgment is coming? Should they alter their message so as not to offend? Should they try to make, or should we even try to make Jesus more palatable to a wicked populace? A thousand times no. We preach the word as it is. We preach the gospel as it is. In fact, the Bible says that if any man bring a gospel to you that is different from ours, let him be accursed. We preach the Bible as it is. When a preacher preaches Christ, he must present him as he is without compromise. Yes, Jesus is love. 
Yes, Jesus is kind, but he himself made a statement that very few preachers will even make today. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but through me. The gospel is an exclusive gospel. There are not many roads leading to heaven. Jesus is not just one of the options. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the uh, door to eternal life. We must preach the truth no matter what the cost. Matthew 7, 14, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Why? One of the reasons I believe, compromising preaching. John Shuck is of Beaverton, Oregon. He's a Presbyterian pastor. And uh, the difference with him, the reason I bring him up today just as an example, he does not believe in God. He does not believe in the resurrection. He does not believe in heaven, does not believe in hell. He makes this statement, I can still be a minister and not believe in magic. That's the extreme example of what happens when we separate the ministry from the Word of God. We had better be clear on this book and preach it uh, from our pulpits and from our church. There was once a pastor who had a five-year-old daughter. The little girl noticed that every time, just before he got behind the pulpit, he would bow his head for a few moments. And she said, Dad, what are you doing when you, uh, when you bow your head before you preach? He says, well, I'm asking the Lord to help me preach a good sermon. She got a confused look on her face and said, now how come he never answers the prayer? Uh, the truth is, the only good preaching that we have is the proclaiming of this book. Amen? And we need to keep it strong and keep it straight. Uh, Oswald J. Smith said the world does not need more sermons. Uh, it needs a message. You can go to seminary and find sermons, but you need to go to God to find a message. And we need to be clear with that message today. Let us proclaim from this church, Bible Baptist Church, a clear message from the Word of God and help impact a lost and dying world for Jesus Christ. We need some Nathans who will say, Thou art the man. We need some Elijahs who will stand tall in front of a king. We need some John the Baptist who will call out the king's adultery. We need some Billy Sundays to cry out against acceptable social sins. Where are the men of God today that love the sinner and hate the sin? 1998, Ellen DeGeneres went to Washington. She joined a demonstration led by congressmen and senators at the steps of the United States Capitol. One of the things she said and declared is that this is a war. Uh, she called God-fearing Christians evil, idiotic, and hateful. The war she talked about was the war against Jewish and Christian beliefs. The problem is that while people who hate God are shouting from the mountaintops, our churches and our, many of our preachers are meekly accepting these things so as not to offend someone. It's a one-sided battle, and it's no wonder that they're winning. God give us some preachers and some churches today who will stand for truth, who will get into the pulpit, roll up their sleeves and call out sin, calling sin, sin. But not even more than that, when we do have that rare moment to get in front of a nation, uh, like I've seen several times on talk shows in June 2005, a prominent pastor in America who's still very popular today got on the Larry King live show and stammered and stuttered when asked about whether Muslims would go to heaven and whether homosexuality was a sin. It is a sad 
sad travesty when a so-called man of God can't call the Bible what the Bible is in front of people. Pastors are either going to preach the truth or they're going to sell out. And it's a crying shame when we compromise the message to appeal to thin-skinned carnal believers. When Micah warns the people, hey, judgment is coming, and he points the finger of fault first, he points it at corrupt politicians, but then to compromising preachers. Who's at fault? Number three, complacent people. Look at verse 11. You'll see the people of Israel here said, hey, we know the politicians are corrupt. We know the preachers are compromisers. But it's okay. The economy is strong. We're happy. They say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Many Americans make a similar claim. Our nation is a Christian heritage. We have godly roots. Hey, so did Israel. So did many other nations throughout history that God judged. The dictionary definition of complacency is a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. Are you complacent today, friend? Are you complacent? I have this morning, and in fact, I made them available for you. They're back behind the bullet, and I'd encourage you to grab one of these. This is just a simple test of complacency. A few questions that will help us to answer the question, am I complacent? Let me read them to you this morning and think about these in your life this morning. Am I complacent? I have talked with the Lord several times today. I can, these are true and false questions, by the way. I can hear the Lord's name used in vain without noticing. I have recently asked my spouse, my child, or my friend for forgiveness. It is embarrassing for me to be around Christians who are verbal about their faith. I get more personally involved and excited at a sporting event than I do at church. I know, close, I know a close family or friend that is going to hell, and I have not shared the gospel with them. I would rather spend time on my looks than I would on my holiness. I fit in socially with non-Christians better and more easily than I do with Christians. I respond humbly to criticism. I've increased my giving in the past year. Email, Facebook, Instagram come after time in God's Word every morning of my life. I have recently lost sleep over my own sin. The Lord's Day is observably different in my life than every other day of the week. I can comfortably watch movies I would not permit my children to see. I have memorized Scripture in the past month. I, have often, I am often overcome with emotion in my personal time with the Lord. Are we complacent? I don't know about you, but I hear some of those questions make me a little uncomfortable, don't they, you? And that's okay. Hey, are we serious or not? Do we want to be complacent? Then we've got to examine ourselves like that. We've got to make some changes. I've printed these out. They're on the back of the bullet, and I encourage you to grab one, stick it in your, on the mirror where you get ready in the morning, or put it where, at your workstation, wherever it might be, and ask yourself these and work towards, hey, we can't be complacent if we're going to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must pursue hard after God or destruction will certainly overtake us. Listen, Jesus Christ can pick you out of the deepest pit, but He doesn't pick you out of your lazy boy. we got to get out of our complacency and get busy for God. We have a crisis of complacency today in America 
in American Christianity. The complacent Christian is overconfident before God. The complacent Christian has no great love for God, no real consciousness of his own sin. The complacent Christian knows that the Word of God will interfere with his own life, and so he avoids it at all costs. The complacent Christian tells himself, hey, I've done enough already uh, for God. The complacent Christian believes he'll reap the rewards of heaven because he deserves it. The complacent Christian decides that minimal service is enough. I mean, Jesus didn't really mean it when he said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. The complacent Christian hurts the cause of Christ. The complacent Christian is as guilty for the, the, the situation of the state of our nation today than the sinners are. Remember the promise 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, then will I uh, forgive their sin and heal their land. Where do we go from here? We should do all we can to put leaders in office that seek to fulfill God's righteous requirements. We should join in and tie ourselves to churches and to preachers who speak the truth in love when it comes to the Word of God. We should lift ourselves out of our zone of comfort and complacency. Listen, complacency is the hurdle that sits in front of you and stands between you and spiritual growth. Yes, our nation's in trouble. But Jesus Christ is the hope of our nation and our world. Amen. His arms of mercy today are open to those who will turn from their wicked ways and embrace Him. I can tell you today the hope of America is not found in the White House. It's not found in the state house. It's not found in the courthouse. The hope of America today is found in the church house and in your house and in my house. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Micah chapter 4 takes a wonderful new theme. One day peace and righteousness will reign. Through the promise in chapter 5, we find that the deliverer will come. He's named 12 cities, and now he names another, Bethlehem, uh, where uh, the birthplace of Jesus. Yeah, it becomes the theme of Micah's final message as he calls on people to trust the Lord and obey Him. The scene in chapter 6 is a courtroom where God has called His people to be judged. He says, then state your case against me. Chapter 6, verse 3, O my people, what have I done unto thee? Uh, wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. And then he pulls the rug out of their argument in uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he talks about some of the things that he did. In chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, the people answer, yes, we have sinned. How can we make up? For all that we have done. They talk about bringing sacrifices. But that can never wash away my sin. They recognize that. You know you can do nothing about your sin condition. You can't do enough good to save yourself. You can't do enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. Uh, so they say, what are we going to do? All our religion can never save us. They said, even if we sacrificed our own children, that would not cleanse us. The answer is found in verse 8, chapter 6. He said, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. God does not want extravagant gifts and sacrifices. God, my friend, wants your heart. 
Psalm 51, verse 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Uh, thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God speaks again in chapter 6, verses 9 through 16. You must repent uh, because judgment is on the way. Then you'll discover how terrible your sins uh, have been. He talks about there how you'll try to satisfy yourselves, but it doesn't work. Uh, you try to eat, but you'll still be hungry. You'll try to save money, but it will vanish. You'll plant crops, but you'll never harvest them. What a tragic picture of sin. And oh, my friend, today when we put more value on the material things of life and we put more value on the temporal things than we do on eternity, we see a nation that goes south. Closing verses in chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, our wonderful confession of faith. This is the whole purpose of Micah's message. He wants to bring people to faith in the Lord. God is the only one who can save sins, forgive sins, I should say. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. He alone will show mercy and love to sinners. He will cast their sins into the depths of the deepest sea, the Bible says. This is why Christ died, so that your sin and my sin might be forgiven. Have you trusted Him today, friend? Have you given Him your life? Have you asked Him to forgive you of your sins? This is the theme of Micah's message. Trust the Lord. Our nation today is in turmoil. We don't have to look very far or very long to see it all over the news. Uh, we have uh, problems, no doubt, but whose fault is it? And you know, we can point fingers all day long, can't we? We can, and, and it's kind of fun to do, in fact, isn't it? Get a cup of coffee with a friend and just talk about all the people destroying this nation, which always excludes any group I'm in, amen? Uh, but we talk about other people, this, this problem, it's that problem. And yet when God puts His finger on the healing process. We're not talking about blaming. We're talking about healing. We're talking about uh, the solution. He says, if my people. I, I tell you, it's, it's easy as a preacher, and it's almost fun to rip and roar against the wickedness of the land and the sins about, uh, that we see abound around us. But according to God's uh, recipe for healing a nation, they don't, enter, they don't even factor in. You know that this is something we better accept as Christians. Lost people are going to act like lost people. That's what's going to happen. The problem isn't that lost people act like lost people. The problem is that Christians don't act like Christians. And when we have Christians that act like lost people and then blame the lost people, God said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. That's the recipe that's the answer. It lies in here more than it does in the neighborhoods that are being looted. It lies right in here. What about you, friend? Are you willing? Listen, I think it would be a great thing for us just to spend five, ten minutes a day, each one of us, praying for our nation. When's the last time we've gotten on our knees and just begged God for America? Bring her back. People have shed blood. People have given their lives to give us what we have. Can we give a few minutes a day and just ask God to be, to be evolved again in our nation? Forgive our sin. Heal our land.
Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. If my